Please be advised that this episode explores the topics of murder and hanging and contains content that some listeners may find distressing. In 1824, Dr Robert Wardell arrived in the colony of New South Wales with a very specific purpose. He'd shared his voyage with a high-quality printing press with which he would start Sydney's first independent newspaper. In a place that was built for and by prisoners, crime stories would inevitably become a staple in its pages. But only a decade into his new life and enterprise, Wardell would be buried in the Devonshire Street Cemetery, the victim of a brutal murder and the subject of a true crime story in his own publication. You're listening to The Burial Files, a podcast about love, loss and the layers of history that lie beneath our feet. It's about rediscovering the places we think we know. I'm Elise Edmonds, Senior Curator at the State Library of New South Wales. In this episode, we'll take a look at how the Australian media landscape was first formed, the important role Robert Wardell played in that formation, and how he met his premature end. So much of what we know today about our colonial history, why we're able to bring voices of the past back to life, is thanks to newspapers. The fact that we can, to a reasonable extent, trust them as historical sources with real stories about real people with real opinions is largely down to our freedom of the press. When stepping off a ship in 1820s Sydney meant accepting life under military rule, it must have taken a special kind of determination to unapologetically set up an uncensored vehicle for the delivery of the news. Here's historian and colonial true crime expert, Dr Rachel Franks. So Robert Wardell was a successful barrister in England and he was also really interested in the media and the power of the newspaper. So he had a press over in England and he met William Charles Wentworth and they, two really big personalities, they were men that really wanted to change the world and they had this extraordinary self-confidence that they could write and publish and change the way people thought about the world around them. So much passion and so much vision to see the world as better than what they were experiencing. It's not just a decision of convenience. There's a real appreciation that this weird melting pot of Sydney is this testing ground for great ideas. You know, you had these visions of the Enlightenment coming through and people were looking at the natural environment differently, at astronomy differently. I mean, here they are. The stars are upside down. What does this actually mean? And so people are willing to take a few chances. But part of that brings a certain level of arrogance. And so they buy a press a really good quality piece of equipment. They bring it out to Sydney and in a tightly controlled environment, they just start a newspaper. They don't ask anybody. Before Wardell and Wentworth arrived on the scene, there'd been a single government-controlled newspaper available to the colonial population. It was started just 15 years after the first prison ships dropped anchor in Sydney Cove. The people are essentially at war with the First Nations people. They're at war with the environment, and in a lot of instances, they're at war with each other. But here we have the Sydney Gazette and New South Wales Advertiser, four pages every week. 
So you're sending out the crooks, the justice system, the most barbaric form of punishment we have, and the means to tell these stories. So there's a not a very sophisticated hand press, a bit of a dodgy piece of equipment that's loaded onto the first fleet with all the other supplies. And it lays dormant for quite some time, but slowly it sort of thumps into life, you know. So they're printing government orders, handbills, the odd play announcement. But then in 1803, George Howe comes out. He's been done for shoplifting, but he's actually a professional printer and he'd worked on the London Times and he'd done all this amazing stuff, but then he did some stupid stuff as well. He ends up out here as a convict. But as the government printer, he prints our first book in 1802. And it's such a great story that you have this country that prides itself on being larrikins and anti-authoritarian. And our first book is a book of rules, and it dictates everything of how pigs will be kept and what the reward is for apprehending a bushranger. Everything you need to know to get along and stay out of trouble in Sydney is in this one book of rules. But the following year, in March, in 1803, he decides, and with permission from the governor, Philip Gidley King, I'm going to start a newspaper. It's bonkers. The idea that you could be out in Sydney, which must have just felt in every way the far end of the universe, and he's constantly being supervised... Not everybody could read. It's not an immediate, oh, this is a good scheme to get rich quick. You suddenly have this, the greatest vehicle of of the newspaper for the telling of true crime stories. And it's terrific. Like, he does not hold back. The very first issue that comes out on the 5th of March, you've got fraud and forgery. You've got attempted murder. You've got a story of gang rape. You've got absconded convicts. And you've got hangings. 18 years after that first edition, George Howe's death was announced in the 912th run of the paper. It was 1821, and he was one of the first people to be buried in the new Sandhill Cemetery at the edge of town. His son Robert, who'd been learning the trade since he was just nine years old, would take over. And it was he, three years later, who was confronted with Wentworth and Wardell's arrival. He thinks... Okay, competition, but also freedom. So he trots down with some urgency to Government House and says, oh, by the way, (laughs) they're not being censored. All my proofs are still being censored. So the censorship is lifted. It's easier to lift the censorship of the Sydney Gazette than to take on Wardell and Wentworth But while they may not have experienced any pushback from the government, producing a newspaper in a colonial outpost was not without its challenges. What's quite interesting about early newspapers in Sydney is that they all have the same problems, essentially. You don't have a regular supply of paper. It's hard to get ink. He's often making his own out of charcoal and shark gum and oil, but paper supply is the main logistical issue. And like all good small businesses, it's cash flow. So everybody's fighting. You've got the Sydney Gazette, New South Wales Advertiser, then the Australian, then the Monitor. Then you have the Sydney Herald coming on the scene in 1831, which of course becomes the Sydney Morning Herald. They survive 
all of this, but trying to get advertisers to pay their bills was extraordinarily difficult. And subscriptions. So newspapers in the early days weren't sold at newsagents that we have now. You subscribed. So for six pence an issue, for example, for the Sydney Gazette, and it was delivered to you once a week. Their production schedule did change. You know, they ended up tri-weekly. They tried every day for a little while. That didn't work out so well, so they went back. So there's this really erratic sense of delivering the news in Sydney. The idea that you can just wake up in the morning and switch on a radio or a television or look at your phone or see the news headlines as you're walking to work, it's so natural for us now to have this sense of entitlement to be informed. And it was really hard work in the colonies. Since these early publications, the detailed reporting of crime and punishment has endured. And so too, perhaps, has the role these stories play in how we understand such terrible events. So we have this idea of a case can absolutely dominate every page of every newspaper. Fantastic publication events around really barbaric crimes for a really long period of time. And then as soon as punishment is delivered, it's like there's this sense of restoration. And whether that punishment is capital punishment or incarceration, we can move on. So we can close that door and feel that we've restored ourselves to a certain extent. I know a lot of people don't like it, but there will always be those flashpoints in our history where everybody needs to have an opinion on punishment because it's not only how we treat the poorest and the most vulnerable in our society that says something about who we are, it's how we treat the most heinous. And I think the reason we read true crime, whether it's a news report or we go out of our way to buy full-length works that unpack every single detail of a case, for people who aren't actually part of the justice system, by standing witness to what's going on around us and developing an opinion, we're endorsing that system and how it works and being prepared to be vocal about it if we feel it's not working. The journalists working on Wardell's paper at the time of his death didn't hold back in their reporting of his violent end and the public outcry that followed was significant. Here's Rachel again to tell us the whole story. In the mid-18th century, the famous London magazine Punch published a short piece on the ever-increasing popularity of true crime stories. We are a trading community, a commercial people. Murder is, doubtless, a very shocking offence. Nevertheless, as what is done is not to be undone, let us make our money out of it. Hereupon, we turn a murderer into a commodity and open an account with homicide. When Robert Wardell founded our second major and first independent newspaper, The Australian, with his business partner William Charles Wentworth in Sydney in 1824, the first issue stated an intention to be unapologetically outspoken. 
Individual influence is apt to luxuriate and flourish where there exists no corrective to check its exuberance or prevent its growth. The editors bluntly declared, a free press is the most legitimate and at the same time the most powerful weapon that can be employed to annihilate such influence, frustrate the designs of tyranny and restrain the arm of oppression. Wardell and Wentworth were both strong-willed men with big personalities. They were unafraid to voice their disagreements with politicians, the clergy, or anyone they felt impelled to criticise. Between them they started, and they finished, a lot of fights in colonial Sydney. Raw ambition, hard work and intelligence saw the pair make lasting contributions to Australia, including a now standard expectation from all of us to enjoy the benefits of a free press. On Tuesday, the 9th of September 1834, the Australian reported on the dreadful murder of Dr Wardell and how another bloody deed has stained the annals of this colony. In an early example of Sydney-based investigative journalism, a representative of the newspaper went to the scene of the crime to try and find out what had happened. Being desirous to obtain the best information of the particulars of this horrid transaction, we hastened to the scene where it was supposed the monstrous deed had been perpetrated. After wandering far and wide across rocks and swamps, we at last discovered the spot where this murderous act had been consummated. The shocking corpse of Wardell was found lying prostrate beneath the branches of a tree, covered with gore. It is supposed that the murderous act must have been perpetrated about three o'clock. The deceased, not returning home as was expected to dinner at that time, anxious fears began to be entertained that some mischance had befallen him. We arrived on the spot, and there, to our infinite regret, beheld a scene of horror which to attempt to describe with truth is not within our power. Imagine a human being crimsoned over with his own heart's blood, a fearful wound on the left side of the throat, immediately under the ear, and another gaping wound sufficient for the escape of a hundred lives, immediately between the left shoulder and the breast. And you have some faint picture of the scene which we beheld yesterday the blood-stained corpse of which was once Robert Wardell was here before us. This is an amazing article. Yes, true crime stories are often dominated by the graphic details of violence, but this is different. In reviewing these words, you can feel the grief and the rage felt by those at the Australian a group of people that knew Wardell and owed so much to him and his business partner Wentworth. He had been, for many, a colleague, an employer and friend. The demand for justice at the end of this piece was a striking call to avenge a victim. So what actually happened? Wardell had been riding on his property at Petersham when he came across three runaway convicts. He unsuccessfully tried to convince the trio to give themselves up to authorities. The leader of the small gang, fearful that Wardell would turn them in, shot and killed him. A brutal and quite cowardly act. Two of the men, including the leader, John Jenkins, a man with a really dodgy past, and Thomas Tattersdale were arrested, tried and convicted for murder. 
The third man, a teenager by the name of Emmanuel Brace, made a deal with prosecutors and gave evidence against his former companions. Brace would not hang, but Jenkins and Tattersdale would mount the gallows before the end of the year. The trial was quite a celebrity event, the courthouse absolutely packed. The jury was sworn in, the indictments were read, and both the prisoners pleaded not guilty. There was evidence, there were witnesses, and the usual emotive arguments. The jury retired, but the door was hardly shut when they came back into court and returned verdicts of guilty against Jenkins and Hatterstall. Jenkins condemned for being the ringleader and the man who pulled the trigger killing Wardell, Tattersdale was done for aiding and abetting. His Honour, Chief Justice Francis Forbes, passed the sentence of death. Both men would be hung by the neck until they were dead and their bodies delivered over to the surgeons for dissection. This is when things became a little bit more dramatic. Tattersdale appeared resigned to a verdict he must have seen as inevitable. He asked the judge to order the teenager Brace to be present as a witness at his execution and requested some time to make his peace with God. While Tattersdale made an attempt at dignity, Jenkins was clearly unimpressed. One newspaper report described Wardell's murderer as having a good deal to say and throwing himself into a threatening and unbecoming attitude, which is a very polite way of saying that Jenkins completely lost it. The convicted murderer started swearing and abusing everyone in sight. He complained he hadn't received a fair trial, he blamed his counsel for the outcome and then declared he could shoot everyone in the courtroom. Jenkins then tried to play for leniency, or at least time, and suggested that in order to prevent innocent persons from being punished, he would confess to several robberies that he had done and that he had shot several bullocks. Forbes, who had been Chief Justice for over a decade when he heard this case, wasn't going to tolerate Jenkins' schemes and told him he had better apply to the clergyman of his own religion if he wanted to make any confessions. Jenkins, who must have been the most hated man in Sydney in 1834, realised he didn't have a lot of options left to him, so he launched himself on Tattersdale. He punched him hard in the face, twice, knocking him down in the dock. Forbes, who had really seen almost everything there was to be seen in a court of law, was quite overwhelmed while he watched his courtroom become a complete scrum. In a classic understatement, the Australian reported that the judge sat in mute astonishment. The scene was one of absolute uproar. There was Paul Forbes, the bashed Tattersdale, the jury, the officers of the court, a small but obviously highly motivated media pack, members of the public and the dozen constables that were required to brawl with Jenkins, secure him and put him in handcuffs. Though restrained, Jenkins fought and hurled insults all the way back to his cell. Jenkins and Tattersdale were hanged on Monday the 10th of November, 1834. Tattersdale offered his hands to Jenkins on the gallows, who turned away declaring, let every villain shake hands with himself. There was little honour among thieves in colonial Sydney, and even less honour among murderers. Wardell's funeral was an elaborate and very public affair. 
There was a grand procession from Wardell's residence at Petersham to the Devonshire Street cemeteries. His business partner, Wentworth, was one of the chief mourners. The pallbearers represented a who's who of the colonial Australian legal fraternity, including Justice James Dowling, the Attorney General and Solicitor General, the High Sheriff and others. Men and women gathered under the overcast skies to pay their respects. In a reflection of Wardell's achievements, there were representatives from numerous industries and professions, all sides of politics and all social classes. The sense of loss was profound. There was, of course, the loss of the man himself, someone who had made his presence felt and who had an immense impact upon the colony as a successful barrister and newspaper man. His family, including his de facto wife Sarah Rowe, his clients, colleagues, friends and the occasional enemy, would have all keenly felt his absence. But there was something else. Wardell's murder challenged the idea of moving beyond an Australia stained by convicts. For many, the southern continent was a place of banishment or self-imposed exile. For others, it was a place of reinvention, a land to make a fortune. Wardell had done just that. Such a violent death brought a man of so many achievements to a dreadful and unexpected end. At a time of significant concern about convict lawlessness, it caused a huge outcry and calls for increased penalties as well as more police to protect the people of Sydney. Robert Wardell was laid to rest at Devonshire Street Cemeteries. His remains were later disinterred and sent to England to be buried next to his father in the Wardell family vault in London. Next week on The Burial Files, we'll take a look at lunacy. In memory of Joseph Mayrick, surgeon, late of Tahiti, he was unfortunately assassinated by a lunatic in this city. Many thanks once more to Rachel Franks for sharing her knowledge with us. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe and take a minute to rate and review us to help other people find the podcast. If you're in Sydney between the 25th of May and 17th of November 2019, be sure to swing by the State Library to visit Dead Central, the exhibition, where you can see many of the items we've been talking about in this podcast. This episode was produced by Sabrina Organo and mixed by Sonar Sound. It features the voice of Brandon Burke. I'm Elise Edmonds.